Welcome to the Development Policy Center podcast. I'm Macarena Rojas. In this episode, we bring you the opening keynote from the 2014 Pacific Update by Zhongzheng Jiang, the resident representative of Pacific Island countries at the IMF. Zhongzheng spoke on the topic In Search of a Pacific Model of Growth. He was followed by Christopher Edmonds, senior economist at the ADB's Pacific Department, who provided a regional economic update. The slides for both presentations are available at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning and uh, welcome. Welcome to the 2014 uh, Pacific Update. Uh, my name is Stephen Howes and I'm the Director of the Development Policy Centre. And uh, we're the proud hosts of this Development Policy Centre, uh, along with our partners, uh, the Asian Development Bank and the uh, Asian and the Pacific Policy Studies uh, Journal. Uh, let us begin by acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and by paying our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Uh, this is the third uh, year of updates uh, since we recommenced them after a gap of several years. And um, the two years ago, we just had one day. Last year, we moved to two days. And uh, this year, we've um, gone to four days. So... We just came back, we had the PNG update in Moresby uh, last Thursday, Friday, and these photos are of very bad quality. <laughs> I'm sorry, they're just from my phone. They show some of the preparations and then the, uh, just some slides from the um, update. That's the PNG treasurer opening it. Uh, it was a great event, actually. We, uh, it's a much bigger lecture theatre than this, and we, we packed it out uh, with about 400 people on the first day. Um, so we've separated out the PNG update, and uh, now we have the Pacific update, which of course also covers PNG. PNG is part of the Pacific, but has a broader uh, regional focus. So we're not planning to uh, expand any further, you'll be glad to know. But um, I think it's great that we have been able to get the uh, update series going again, and also that we've been able to link into the, um, run it back to back with the State of the Pacific uh, conference, which uh, as you know follows later on in the week. Uh, I think that's all uh, by way of introduction. So I'd like to uh, introduce our first uh, two keynote speakers. Uh, we have a third uh, keynote speaker uh, in the program tomorrow, and we're very uh, honoured to have Ron Duncan uh, speaking tomorrow, uh, reflecting back on a, a lifetime of work on the Pacific. But uh, we start off today with uh, Yongjeng Young and Krista Edmonds. So Yongjeng, for those of you who don't know him, is the IMF uh, res resident representative for the Pacific Island countries. He's been there for the last four years in Fiji, but looking after all of the Pacific. And he's moving on shortly in September back to Washington. So we thought this would be a great opportunity for him to share with us some of what he's learnt and uh, his reflections. And of course, we're particularly happy to have you back, Yongjeng, because you're an ANU alumni and done your PhD here. So we'll hear first from Yongjeng in search for a Pacific model of growth uh, for about half an hour. And then uh, we have Chris Redmond's uh, Christopher is uh, Senior Economist with the Pacific Department. Uh, he spoke last year, gave a great overview, and we hope he'll give us a, another great uh, overview. And, of course, Christopher's one of the key people putting the conference together. So we'll uh, thank everyone at the end, but also I'd like just to acknowledge you, Christopher, uh, for your work in uh, putting the conference together. Um, and uh, he'll uh, speak for another uh, half an hour, and then that should give us uh, 20 minutes for questions. 
So if you could please join with me in welcoming Yong Zheng Yang. Great. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks, uh, Stephen, for the introduction, and thanks, everyone, uh, for being here. I'm glad to be back at ANU, though, the, though I didn't expect the weather would be this cold. So, uh, I'm having a little bit of trouble with my throat, so you have to bear with me a uh, very cracky voice from time to time. But as Stephen mentioned, that um, I've been in the Pacific for the past four years almost, and um, I'm about to leave, so I'm going to uh, leave uh, behind me some reflections, uh, hopefully not bubbles, um, just some thoughts that, um, you know, from the past four years, what I've learned, what, we, uh, what I thought might be useful to share. So um, what I'll do is I'll quickly uh, provide an overview of growth performance of Pacific Island countries. And then I'll try to uh, offer some explanation <coughs> Excuse me. why growth in most Pacific Island countries have been slow. And then what can we do uh, to increase growth uh, before I just uh, offer a few concluding remarks. Now, you normally think that you know, growth issue is the purview of the World Bank, ADB, the MF hardly ever get into long-term growth issues. But in my experience, this is probably the most frequently asked question to me and to my MF colleagues when we visit countries. I think the reason um, is pretty simple, um, that um, growth is very important, is fundamental for poverty reduction. And also, it's critical for job creation. We know in Pacific Island right now, there are a lot of young people who are waiting for jobs. And in fact, if you, uh, you know, talk around, many governments and central banks are in the region have been under considerable uh, political pressure to boost economic growth and create jobs. Another reason that um, Pacific Island policymakers are focusing on growth is that growth has been very sluggish in recent years. Works. In some countries, in fact, um, real income growth have barely kept up with um, um, population growth. So per capita income has been stagnating. But what, is, what is even more concerning to me is that growth in most Pacific Island countries have been slowing down over time. Uh, when I say over time, it's a long uh, period in decades. This, as you see this in this graph, is in sharp contrast with low-income countries. There we see growth has been going up over time. In this graph, we also see in the last three years, uh, Pacific Island countries seem to manage higher growth. But you will see from the next graph that is entirely due to growth in two countries, resource-rich countries, PNG and Solomon Islands. Once you take these two countries out of the average, you notice that Pacific Islands, other Pacific Island countries' growth has been continued, uh, have continued to decline over the past three years. So you might already start to wonder why growth uh, in non-resource-rich Pacific Island countries have fallen behind not only 
low-income countries, but also other um, smaller countries, peer countries. I'm not sure there is a conclusive uh, explanation for this. Um, and as I said, this my re reflection. I'll make a few observations um, to uh, offer some thoughts to share. Um, I think one of the critical issues is geographical location combined with smallness. These two factors, when they put together, when you put them together, is becoming increasingly important uh, in, term, in determining growth. Some recent empirical work shows that Pacific, Pacific Island countries' remoteness may have reduced their per capita GDP growth over the past few decades also by some one and a half percentage points um, compared with other small states. Now, if you think that number is huge, because over this period, two, dec two decades or so, Pacific Island countries only managed to grow by about 0.4% per year. That 1.5% is twice the actual growth rate. So geography does seem to have been hampering growth in Pacific Island countries. But you might ask why remoteness and country size suddenly become very important. We know from some earlier work by Italy uh, of World Bank saying small is beautiful, no problem for small countries. And why suddenly it becomes so difficult to grow for small, smaller and remote countries. My hypothesis here is that being small and remote often leads to marginalization in a world of increasing regionalism. Just give an example, none of the Pacific Island countries is part of any free trade agreement in Asia or North Pacific. PNG is the only exception, but PNG, you know, PNG we know is a member of the APEC, but it's very large, it's very close to Asia. So it's almost in a different league. Moreover, being small and remote means that <clears throat> you are most likely to be left out of global supply chains. No Pacific Island countries have plugged into a global supply chain of manufacturing or something like. <clears throat> Perhaps partly in response to the marginalization, Pacific Island countries have turned to regional integration. As you know, there are a lot of agreements among themselves. But this does not seem to have helped very much, in my view, because there's very little complementarity among Pacific Island countries. They produce very similar products and very little chance of trade with, with each other. Above all, even if you know, these economies were complementary, um, they collectively constitute a very small market. We're talking about a population of just a little over a million, uh, sorry, 10 million people, and 70% of that is from Papua New Guinea. So very small market for meaningful regional integration. I've been talking so much on geography and uh, um, you know, smallness. Of course, there are very important other factors that have affected Pacific Island countries' growth. I won't go into a lot of detail, but let me just uh, turn to some of the more policy-related factors, if you like, uh, to highlight the issues. One factor that I think is important is late or slow reform in areas that are vital to overcoming Pacific Island countries' Uh, disadvantages from being small and remote. 
What I have in mind are telecom and transportation. Uh, these two industries uh, come to my mind. Of course, you can partly blame small niche and remote for relatively expensive um, telecom and transport services because, after all, these industries also exhibit, exhibit economic scale. But slow progress in introducing competition in these two sectors has meant that service cost remains high. State monopoly was able to continue until recently in many countries, and in some, they continue, uh, it continues until today. <clears throat> I mean, growth constraints vary, uh, vary from country to country in the Pacific. But I want to highlight just two more common issues. These are the relatively weak property rights and poorly performing public enterprises. The former is most prominently related to uh, customary, the use of customary land, as you probably know. Uncertainty over land tenures often affects investment both directly and indirectly. When I say indirectly, I mean that these impacts arises from difficulties in using customary land in, uh, as a collateral to secure bank loans. Uh, so financial market imposing a constraint, as we often heard from country office, imposing constraint on growth. But coming from the MF, I thought I would also mention uh, the macro side of the uh, you know, picture. At the macro level, I believe there is a competitiveness issue arising from policy settings. As you know, most Pacific Island countries have a pack exchange rate regime. That is not the problem. The problem is that a number of them have experienced very considerable currency appreciation over the past decade or so. The grasp in squeeze, so you don't see the scale of um, of appreciation that much. It's my sort of conjecture that the currency appreciations, uh, appreciations may have contributed to weak competitiveness of particular two sectors, agriculture and to a less extent, tourism, in some Pacific Island countries. I wouldn't say in all. I'll come back a little bit uh, on this issue uh, later on. But the topic of this, you know, speech is about a growth model. Um, do we have one? Now, given the difficulties I outlined, geography, policy settings, and so on and so forth, you know, we wonder whether there is a particular model that Pacific Island countries can use to help them mitigate their disadvantages. And I've been thinking about this issue. If we can find such a model, then it will help us development partners, and the countries in particular, to concentrate their resources and reform effort to make such model work. We all know the standard thinking on economic growth is that countries will go through industrialization. <coughs> We've seen that particularly in Asia, you know, moving from primary industries or activities to manufacturing, and then to value-added services. I think most economists here would agree, or most people would agree, 
that because they're small size, Pacific Island countries cannot pursue such a strategy, i.e. pursuing manufacturing as a, a critical stage of, of uh, economic growth. So these countries need to find their, their own export industries, their own export, their own foreign exchange earning activities that can serve the role of manufacturing that it did in Asia and other parts of the world. In my view, at the current global economic uh, juncture, Pacific Island countries' the most promising opportunities are in the falling industries or falling sectors. Resources, these are the minerals, fisheries, natural resources, tourism, and agriculture. I've came up with this uh, Pacific pyramid. So here I put in rankings of these sectors based on reviewed comparative advantage. As you can see, this is a, a big generalization. Uh, the truth is that the order of comparative advantage may uh, vary uh, from country to country slightly, if not significantly. I draw exchange rate line. It means that at current exchange rate level, natural resources, tourism are probably pretty competitive. Agriculture, struggling perhaps. And manufacturing has very little chance in general. And services, non-tradable services, are going to be difficult to compete overseas. A key challenge here is that apart from, as I said, mineral resources, tourism, comparative advantage may not be enough for Pacific Island countries to substantially expand the tourism and agriculture. I treat these are the most important drivers of growth for some countries at least. Many of you would be uh, familiar or aware of the work done by Alan Winters and Pedro Martins um, on the high co cost structure of key export industry, industry in uh, small states. I believe they made a, a presentation here some time ago. They found that the small states, especially those defined as macro states, countries that have a population of less than 200,000, these countries suffer a large cost disadvantage because of the lack of economy scale and high cost of transportation. These industries they uh, look at including, uh, include uh, clothing and electronics, <coughs> but interestingly, they also include tourism, which we often think that Pacific Island countries have a strong comparative advantage. So the question is, how can we turn comparative advantage into absolute advantage, meaning that you can produce something at a cost that is comparable or cheaper, lower than your competitors. Broadly speaking, there are only two, two ways to do this. One is through a competitive exchange rate. The second we know is through improvement in productivity so that your productivity moves faster than your competitors you can gain market shares. So how can exchange rate policy help? Oops, not yet. Well, at least in theory, it's very simple. 
A more efficient exchange rate, as we know, that would allow local exporters to earn more in local currency. Right? However, a more, a more depreciated local currency would also mean high inflation, as we know, Pacific Island countries import a lot from overseas. High inflation would at least partially offset the competitiveness gains that you get from a devaluation or depreciation. But it's my judgment overall, in terms of this pyramid, sorry, in, this, in terms of this pyramid, that you can move the exchange rate and that will stimulate more exports. Here I'm using agriculture as an example. As exchange rate depreciate, you get more response in exports in agriculture. The reason I think agriculture has been affected by exchange rate and exchange rate might be helpful is that it's pretty much all locally produced. Pacific Island agriculture does not use much imported uh, content or input. Of course, I'm aware that there's not a whole lot of uh, research done on this issue, that is, how effective exchange rate policy is in improving competitiveness in the Pacific. And I've been trying to do some work, but the data has been a, a quite an issue. However, there is some anecdotal evidence which suggests that exchange rate does work, at least in some countries. What I have in mind is the 2009 devaluation in Fiji, which seemed to have boosted the tourism quite substantially, as well as compressed imports and alleviated the balance of payment pressure. As we know, at that time, Fiji was facing balance of payment pressure. Farmers in Tonga has also you know, res uh, re responded extremely well to good prices overseas for pumpkins. And that happened in the 1990s, I believe, and is now happening again re in recent years. Uh, exports of pumpkins and watermelons, I believe, too, are now gaining momentum. Perhaps so much on the exchange rate. Let me turn to um, the productivity improvement um, issues. On this front, um, I would say that Pacific Island countries seem to have done rather poorly. Um, there's not a lot of uh, empirical work done to support my claim. But if you look at the relatively slow GDP growth as shown earlier, over time, and compare with you know, decent growth in labor force and investment, there's evidence that, you know, is it evi sorry, it is evident that productivity growth in the Pacific has been rather slow. When we talk about policies to uh, increase productivity, we often quite easily jump into the business environment issues, which you know, quite often re reflected in the World Bank doing business indicators. Um, I'm not going to talk about that um, today. Uh, obviously, these are very important areas of reform and critical for growth. What I'll do is I'll try to focus on how Pacific Island countries can strategically positioning themselves in a changing global environment. What I have in mind is the emergence of Asia as a global economic center.
Now, improving productivity is not confined to reducing cost of production of, of existing goods and services. It is perhaps more important to be able to shift to production of new goods, new services. I think in this area, it is critical uh, for the Pacific Island countries to consider. Let's take taro exports as example. At the moment, most taro exports we know are going to Australia, New Zealand, and United States. But the demand is very limited because the consumers are mostly Pacific Islanders living overseas. So as soon as one country starts to increase exports, others might suffer. So the here, the point is we're producing very homogeneous goods. And the market is not large enough. So what can we do? As far as I know, both Chinese and Japanese eat quite a bit of taro. They're different kinds of taros. And they are very popular and sometimes regarded as have, having medical uh, properties that help, uh, help you to improve health. So imagine if Pacific Island countries can develop the taro, the type of taro that China and Japan eat, we potentially can open a huge market. Similarly, this is my naive thinking. I've been wondering for quite a while, I've been talking to some Fijian entrepreneurs, that can Pacific Island countries grow traditional herbal medicines that are in such huge demand in Asia? We're talking about billions, billions each year. You know, Pacific countries are having different geography, different soil. <coughs> I could imagine some countries might be able to grow ginseng, you know, in the hills and somewhere else. I mean, here I'm merely using taro and herbal medicine as examples to make the point that Pacific Island countries need to think outside the box and find their own niche in the Asian market and global market for that matter. Some countries, I must say, are making progress. Uh, one good example of this being some of the normal exports uh, to China. I tested once. Uh, to me, it's quite difficult to swallow. <laughs> but in China, it's treated as a, a health product, has strong medical property. Most of you haven't heard it, I know that. Um, I only tasted it not that long ago. Um, it's a bit like kawa. Now, in general, Pacific Island countries need to diversify into, as I said, high-value products and into emerging Asian markets. These markets, in my view, are even more promising for tourism development. Of course, Australia and New Zealand have been major sources of tourist arrivals in the Pacific and will remain dominant sources of tourist arrivals in the Pacific for a foreseeable future. But if you look at the Asian markets, the potential for tourism in the Pacific is huge. Last year, there were nearly 100 million Chinese went overseas. And that's China alone, of course. At the moment, Pacific Island countries pick up less than one-tenth of one percent of those tourists. I think I have a graph here, to show you how fast tourist departures have grown in China, exponentially, uh, 
over the past uh, uh, almost two decades now. Of course, this doesn't mean that the Chinese tourists will come to the Pacific just because there are so many of them. Um, you know, we have to be smart to do marketing to increase awareness and to, to improve connectivity, infrastructure, and services that are necessary to attract tourism to come to the Pacific. Occasionally, I pass through Nandi and talk to a few Chinese tourists. I ask them, how do you find Fiji? Oh, I didn't find it. It's just that uh, I was Googling for somewhere to go. And in fact, one couple said I was planning to go to Maldives, but then it's all fully booked out. So I Googled, I found Fiji, so I decided to try it. So you can see the extent of knowledge in China about Pacific Island country. We're talking about Fiji, the most prominent one uh, in terms of, of tourism. So talking about Maldives, let me show you how well they did. Started from the mid-last decade, from nowhere. Now the tourist arrivals from China reached 332,000. In just eight years, it's just grown just like a marshal. And now the Chinese tourists in Maldives, the largest group, is count for full one-third of all tourist arrivals there. Some people sometimes ask how they did that. To be honest, I don't know. But it's a Pacific island country, it's an island country in the ocean. When I look at the map, the distance between Maldives and China are slightly shorter than to, say, Fiji. But most Chinese have to go to the Middle East and come down. So if you take that into account, the distance is just as far, if not far farther. But maybe there is an advantage. The Chinese like shopping. They go to the Middle East and stop in Dubai or somewhere else, pick up few duty-free goods. Now, expansion of tourism should also help agriculture in the Pacific. Right now, one of the biggest hurdles <coughs> for exporting agricultural products from the Pacific to overseas market is high transportation costs. As we know, agricultural products are, are bulky. Increases in tourism uh, in Pacific Island countries would mean that the local producers can export more to hospitality industries without incurring international transport costs. In fact, there can be considerable synergies between tourism and agriculture. Improving in agricultural, in agricultural supply would also enhance competitiveness of tourism industry. This is one area that I know that our USP colleagues have been working very hard. So I also have this pyramid to show the idea that if you can link up agriculture and tourism, and the two can reinforce each other to increase competitiveness. I'm, I'm mindful, fully mindful, that it's not every Pacific Island countries has a prospect of increasing tourism and agriculture in the short run, or not even in the medium term sometimes, whether it's uh, you know, exposing to the traditional market or Asia. Because some of these countries simply don't have the infrastructure to accommodate large number of tourists, and it will take them years to, to build those uh, necessary facilities. Fortunately for these countries, I think they have something else that they can focus on. 
I'm talking about countries like Tuvalu, Kiribati, Micronesia, and Marshall Islands. These countries all have abundant marine resources, particularly tuna. These resources, <coughs> excuse me. These resources are equivalents of gold and copper in PNG and Solomon's. These marine resource-rich countries have large potential to increase value they can extract from these resources. What I think is critical to extract more from these resources is to strengthen regional cooperation, particularly so far as tuna is concerned. This reminds me of the excellent work done by Tom Compass and his colleagues. Tom is here, of course, uh, in this uh, school. They have shown that if Pacific Island countries can collectively, collectively uh, emphasize, limit their catch of tuna to a profit-maximizing level rather than biologically sustainable level, which is actually higher than the profit-maximizing level, then Pacific Island countries can nearly double the annual profits. And that's my reading of the paper. I might be wrong, but certainly it seemed to me the potential there is huge. Of course, considerable progress has been made in recent years through the uh, parties to Nauru Agreement, the PNA. But many people um, do agree from my uh, contact that more can be done, including through strict enforcement of vessel day uh, limits and restricting illegal fishing. Now, for Pacific Island countries that don't have immediate prospects to develop marine resources, agriculture, tourism, exports of labor services, to me, must be a priority. To be sure, labor service exports under the seasonal worker scheme have already become quite significant for several countries, such as Tonga, Samoa, and Vanuatu. At a time when there are so many young Pacific Islanders looking for jobs, these schemes can play a vital role for economic and social development. I quite often hear uh, through my contact with my authorities that this is so critical for them. It's not just economic development. It's a social stability. It's for the generation, young generation, to gain skills to stand on themselves. One way to ensure a steady expansion of the seasonal worker scheme over time is, in fact, to make sure that these schemes to become part of the PESA Plus agreement. In my view, a development-oriented PESA Plus that realizes the benefits of seasonal labor scheme would be a very effective way of development assistance. We're talking about aid. This could be a very informative effective form of aid. I think I've talked quite a bit, so I'll try to wrap it up to sum up my key messages. I'm sure by now you realize that I have not been able to articulate a unique model of growth for the Pacific. My sense is that Pacific Island countries would have to do what other larger countries do in terms of finding a viable growth model, if you like. 
And essentially, they had to follow their comparative advantage in pursuing outward oriented growth, which is, you know, so vital for small economies. If you're large, if you're China, your domestic market is large enough to sustain you. Even China, we know, of course, have a very uh, outward oriented growth strategy. However, given Pacific Island countries' um, um, uniqueness, um, it is more difficult for them to, if you like, explore comparative advantage. Countries will need to work really hard to find their niches. As I mentioned earlier on, you need to see, think outside the box. It is also in this context that I think it's also very critical that Pacific Island countries need to make sure their exchange rates are competitive so that their competitive advantage can indeed turn into absolute advantage and translate into export opportunities. An overvalued exchange rate, if you like, can drown any comparative advantage you may have. Looking at that uh, uh, pyramid that I, I showed you. Given there are only a small number of industries and activities that we can identify that Pacific Island countries have comparative advantage, I think that's a, perhaps a chance that the governments and development partners could perhaps more strategically target resources to support necessary infrastructure and logistics to create an enabling environment for industries and activities, activities that could become growth drivers. To make these drivers work, Pacific Island countries should continue to deepen their integration with traditional partners, securing market access for agricultural products but also, very importantly, as I earlier mentioned, expanding opportunities for exports of labor services, including through the PESAR Plus agreement. At the same time, I think it's critical for the Pacific Island countries to move quickly to establish strong commercial ties with Asia, as Asian economies are the most dynamic sources of demand for Pacific Island countries' goods and services. Thank you very much. Well, thanks very much, Yong Jing. I'm sure that will generate lots of discussion. I thought it was a very nuanced uh, presentation. But please hold your questions because uh, we will first hear from uh, Christopher Edmonds, who will give us a regional economic update, and then we'll go to Q&A. So um, 30 minutes, Christopher. Thank you. Please welcome Christopher Edmonds. I'll get it when I go there. Okay, so good morning, everyone, and uh, thanks for coming out on this uh, brutally cold, at least for me, coming from Manila uh, Monday morning to talk about this. And thank, th I, and thanks to Yang Zhang for an extremely interesting presentation. Uh, it's so refreshing to hear an IMF macroeconomist really focus on the, the sectoral and, and uh, sort of structural adjustment issues. Um, 
my DG recently made a joke that or, uh, we have a department that's doing all this very intensive macro stuff, and now IMF, the SUVA office, is coming out with all this stuff, sort of looking at the fundamental growth engines in different sectors. So I, I think that's good um, and uh, a very interesting development. Anyway, I've been, ta I've been given the, the onerous task of trying to provide a, a, a regional economic overview for an extremely diverse uh, region, uh, in ADB's case, a region that covers 14 countries. I hope in the course of this I can give you a flavor. You'll see that actually there's a fair amount of overlap when we look at sort of what are the key things I would look at when I look at sort of what's driving, you know, quarter to quarter or year to year growth trends in the region. It's, it's exactly the same sectors that Yongzhan just highlighted in his uh, uh, excellent presentation. Um, what I really hope to do, I guess, as an objective is, is entice you to, to take the effort to go and look at these two ADB publications. So, I mean, as part of the work we do in the Pacific Department of ADB is to come up with quarterly economic updates of developments in the region um, uh, with two publications. So uh, on, on the first and third quarters, we, we have the Asian Development Outlook, and now uh, the, and the Pacific Economic Monitor is the other one that comes out in the odd quarters. So uh, and I encourage you to take a look at that. Um, we benefit greatly from our network of economists and, and contacts in the region to, to try to put together the best available information on what, what, what are the developments in the different countries. Um, just quickly, ADB has somewhat of a, its own unique definition of the Pacific um, and the countries that we serve. So my, my comments will be confined to these 14 countries. I guess the, the interesting country that a lot of people don't include in the Pacific is Timor-Leste. But actually, it, it, in many ways, it's, it, it bears a lot of similarities to some of the other economies of the Pacific. And it's really kind of the bridge between Southeast Asia and the Pacific um, looking forward. Okay. Just quickly, um, in terms of what's happening globally, I mean, in general, the global economic environment is improving. I mean, if you go back just a couple of years, we were talking about whether Greece would default on its debt and stuff, and the, so the EU crisis is behind us. The U.S. economy is, is picking up, not, not a, a great, robust recovery, but at least it's, it's improving. Um, we have uh, the Australian and New Zealand economies keep trugging along. I guess New Zealand, Australia, there's somewhat, somewhat, some more questions sort of about the outlook in, in light of possible fiscal tightening. Um, I guess on the global outlook, we, we see there are, there are a couple of uh, ongoing regional conflicts that, that threaten to escalate, so that would sort of be the one, one cloud on the horizon. Um, Basically, Pacific trade and tourism is off to a good start in 2014, and we also see improving conditions for uh, the overseas markets for Pacific workers. So that, that's all the encouraging stuff. Um, the overall trends in the Pacific is that uh, basically our, our current assessment is that growth performance remains in line with what we had written about in April in terms of the Asian development outlook. Um, the numbers I'll be speaking to in this presentation draw from the ADO because I don't want to preview too much of the Pacific Economic Monitor that's coming out early next month. So I've been told to stay away from those numbers. I'll, I'll sort of hint at them. Um, the big story is regional growth is definitely strengthening in 2014, and in 2015 it's going to hit this stratosphere for reasons I'll explain. Uh, we do see uh, some, some trends towards uh, rising inflation. Um, as in years past, if you heard my presentation last year, as usual, it, it's the resource exporting economies that really lead the regional growth figure, with PNG having over a 50% weight in that regional growth figure. Um, but we also see in a few economies the growth outlook diminished by certain developments that have happened within the country. So I'll, I'll try to emphasize those a bit. 
Okay, so the overall outlook you can see um, compared to 2013 was, was a pretty rough year in the Pacific with uh, at a regional weighted basis, average growth of only 4.8%. And as Young John said, in many of the countries, this level of growth didn't even keep up with population growth. And that's been the trend for the last decade or so. Um, so this year we're predicting, predict, projecting, well, the ADO projected 5.4% growth regionally. But then you can see that, that astounding figure of 21% growth uh, projected for 2015. Um, and the reason for that, um, I'll, I'll come back to when I, it's basically the LNG exports coming online in PNG. So you're going to have this one, word, one year burst of growth rate from, from PNG, which will mitigate after one year. But it's going to, regionally, it means a huge, thing, uh, a huge uh, growth, rising growth at a regional level. I meant to start my time clock so I keep track of time. Because, Steve, you're not holding up a little. <laughs> okay, don't. I want to stay on time. Um, okay, uh, so at a regional level, uh, that, that regional growth sort of hides, uh, again, disparate growth across, across the countries where you have sort of the big four economies with slightly stronger growth, and then you have much more sluggish growth, barely keeping up with population growth in the South Pacific, the small island economies, and the North Pacific. And I'll talk quickly about sort of the growth drivers and the, the drivers of the growth trends in these different economies. And as I said before, essentially early year, earlier developments and, and the, the economic indicators coming out early in the year are leading us to probably moderately downgrade our growth projections for this year at a regional level and slightly for 2015. Uh, but we're going to leave 2016 growth uh, about uh, the same in the Pacific Island economies. Okay, so so the, the light blue bars are the big four, is the overall, including the resource exporting economies, and the small blue ones are the ones excluding P&G and Timor-Leste. Okay. When I, so I think, uh, again, given the complexity of the region, um, I think it's, it's useful to sort of think about... Uh, Five, five key drivers. So if you can keep track of what's happening in terms of these th three, five things, you can get a pretty good feeling for what's happening uh, to growth in these countries. And I guess it, it's more or less in, in a similar order to the pyramid that we saw in the prior presentation. In terms of uh, growth is really being driven by resource exports and resource depletion uh, across the countries. Again, just given the size of the, the resource exporting economies. Public sector performance is, is another sort of key driver. So many of the smaller economies are basically driven by public expenditures because the private sectors tend to be relatively small. Um, and in the countries that have had uh, better performance lately, particularly you know, large increases in their fiscal expenditure, they've really struggled with ramping up the public sector capacity to implement that spending effectively. Uh, most notably, PNG and Timor-Leste have really asked their governments to really escalate, almost quadruple the amount of money that they're they're going to be spending effectively, and they've they've struggled perennially with the issue of uh, expending these budget effectively. So the, both both the, the efficiency of public expenditure has fallen, and just the ability to execute budgets effectively have have, have struggled. Although you see major progress in both countries. Uh, and this also relates to the ability of the government to deliver on its, its need to improve basic transport and communication infrastructure to improve connectivity, which I, again, agree with Yang Zhan. That's sort of the key to the economic future of the region. Um, if you look at what's happening in the tourism sector, that's the other thing. So the easy indicator there is just tourism arrivals. 
Um, but you also want to look at what, how, how the sector is structured. So there is better tourism and, and less, less good tourism in terms of the amount of leakage. So that's a perennial issue with tourism. You can get enclave tourism, which really doesn't benefit domestic economies very much. Or you can get uh, uh, tourism that's really linked to the local economy, uses a lot of local inputs, and that'll, that'll have a much bigger impact. Um, definitely overseas employment and remittance trends. So, you know, the, the global financial and economic crisis, a lot of the economies really took a hit in terms of their remittances. Uh, but now we see recovery in that, and that, that's a positive thing. In addition to Samoa, Tonga being the two big ones that readily, Vanuatu has a sizable industry. In the North Pacific, the, the uh, labor linkages between the U.S. and the North Pacific economies are extremely important. And then lastly is, again, uh, the aid, uh, evolving level of aid, of aid and, and how the, the aid relationships that are developing. Okay. So looking now, now going into the uh, particular uh, groups of countries, if you look at the, the four largest countries, we have uh, PNG, Solomon Islands, and Timor-Leste as being predominantly resource export-driven economies, and they've achieved uh, the, the, the highest rates of growth in the region in recent years. Um, with, with Solomon Islands, um, earlier, five years ago, they were growing much more strongly. Now, they, now they've hit some uh, tougher times with depletion of their forest resources. And then we have the, the Fiji economy, uh, which is kind of the, the sleeping giant of the region. And, and uh, uh, we're, we're, we're looking at... Um, and it's also one of the most diversified economies in the region. So I'll come back to that one in a minute. But if you see uh, across the, the, these larger economies, you get a much higher growth rate and then uh, much more sluggish growth in the other three areas as we had talked about. So as, as uh, we noted, P&G has, has been the driver and has been achieving very strong growth. For 2014, we're projecting 2.6% growth, but by next year, 21% growth. And, and that's using old sector weights to their national accounts. And if you actually reweighted it according to what the size of current, sector are, current sectors are, that, that growth figure would be even greater. But wisely, the government is backing off from, from publicizing that because it's difficult enough to, to manage expectations when you're, when, when you're, you're talking about 21% growth. Um, but then, you know, that falling off by 2016 to just 4.8% growth. Um, I guess the real concern there is, uh, and that's what this, this figure displays, is that that growth is really purely driven by mining and petroleum exports, which don't tend to be very labor-intensive sectors or sectors very well linked to the domestic economy, whereas you see um, actually slowing growth in, in the, the, the other sectors of the economy, particularly the, the, the agricultural sector. Um, mentioning, uh, again, related uh, among the countries that have suffered the, the overvalued exchange rates or the exchange rate appreciation, P&G is perhaps the most extreme case in the region. And it's actually remarkable that, you know, P&G continues to have coffee exports in spite of the appreciation of the keen over the past few years. So it's put a very challenging and challenging macroeconomic environment for these, for, for the agricultural producers in P&G, but it's a sector with tremendous potential for development uh, if, if certain structural constraints could be overcome. But, so that's a real concern um, moving ahead. I mean, the other thing that, that comes to mind when I think about the PNG, this rise in growth does mean that the government coffers are quite full. So then it means the government is the key conduit through which you're going to achieve uh, equalizing growth. 
So the, the efficiency of the public sector is going to be, and how effectively it can implement programs, is going to be the key drivers of, of broader, uh, deeper economic growth and sustainability of economic growth in PNG. Okay. So Timor-Leste is, is a very unique economy. Um, so I'm switching to the next one. Um, and we're, we're, we're holding to roughly about 8.0% growth. Uh, well, 8.5% is our current, was the ADO forecast. Um, I mean, Timor-Leste economy essentially is being driven by the royalties from the Bayan Uldul, uh, Uldan oil field um, off its south shore. Um, and so it puts the government in an enviable position to get these large inflows. And they very wisely deposit most of that into the petroleum fund, so they're creating a long-term national endowment. Um, and then they are using the rest, uh, the balance of that, to fund current expenditure in an effort to, to spur uh, sort of a more inclusive growth in the country. But So they, they, have, um, they have these huge uh, oil revenues. They maintain a budget surplus, and they deposit huge funds into the petroleum fund. Um, in 2013, they saw their exports of goods and services increase, although uh, they, the, the deficit actually in, increased because imports grew even faster, and deficit is financed with the oil royalties. In, in 2015, the government um, is, uh, has scaled back slightly its uh, capital investment plan. So earlier years, this is, again is, comes back to the, the challenge of, of asking a government to scale up its, its, its expenditures so quickly and the difficulty of implementing such massive scale projects so quickly. Um, so uh, the earlier budgets in this decade definitely had uh, very ambitious spending plans that were annually under underexpended. So now, now the, the Ministry of Finance is trying to work with the line ministry to sort of scale back expectations at the, and, and get expenditures to come in line with what's budgeted. So that's a very good development. Um, but um, when you look at non-petroleum non growth, it's really being driven, and, and inflation, it's really being driven by budget execution at this point because the, the petroleum sector is such a dominant force in the economy. Um, in early 2014, one, one worrying sign and, and this, uh, is that we, we see private sector growth moderating, at least as measured by uh, credits of the private sector. So there's been a slowdown in that. And that, that of course, is the hope, is that the government policies can, can spur diversification of the economy through the retail, uh, transport sectors, tourism, agriculture. These are, the, these are the, the sectors that the government strategy sees as being the growth potential. But um, the, the early 2014 has shown that credit is slowing down. Uh, so, uh, and tax revenues are also slightly down. Uh, but public spending is recovering, but from a low base. So, so, so the 2013 budget was underspent. But um, that makes it, makes it very difficult. When, when, when public expenditures are driving growth and the budget isn't, isn't a very good indicator of what the actual expenditures will be, it's a little hard to predict growth. And we, we also have Timor-Leste is a relatively new country where they're, they're still working on their national accounts. So my understanding is that the most recent IMF mission was actually looking at revising some of the historical figures. Um, the other thing that happened last year was some of the long-term uh, long-term balances, basically the projected uh, flow of future revenue from the oil field was downgraded, and this means that uh, the, the long-term uh, current account surpluses and things, they, they were moderated, so that's going to have an impact on expectations. So that, that's sort of a take. Um, fortunately, uh, 
later today, we're going to hear from a real expert in Timor-Leste. Um, Mr. Mr. Helder Lopez uh, is going to speak more about the economy. So I'm going to move on. Uh, Solomon Islands is, is, is an economy that basically before, before this year was already suffering from sort of um, the, the decline in its, its forestry exports. Um, now added on top of it, they've really been adversely impacted by the tropical cyclone Ada, which really flooded most of the, the capital city of Aniara and neighboring provinces. Um, so so uh, we're likely to downgrade our growth forecast for Solomon Islands. Um, you can see the figure here is showing sort of what's been happening to uh, forestry exports from the country. Um, and there is a fair amount of reconstruction that's going to be needed after the cyclone, um, which in the short term will probably slow growth, but maybe, maybe by next year um, with the capital, increased capital expenditure, you'll have an up, upturn in growth. Okay. In Fiji, this is sort of the wild card in the Pacific region, in my opinion. We, we, there are lots of indicators that the economy is picking up in advance of the September elections. Um, you know, things seem to be smoothing along. We have a significant part, development partner re-engagement with the country. So like, like most economies, they go through a, a, a period of um, kind of, a, I'm trying to think, of, a chill, as it were. And then when, when that chill opens up, you usually get a burst of growth. I mean, Fiji, Fiji's chill wasn't as strong as some of the other countries, but we do expect sort of a, uh, an uptick of growth. So we're very likely to, to revise our growth at forecast for Fiji in the next monitor. Um, there has been significant uh, credit and investment expansion. Um, so that's all a very good thing. The thing that's not so good about that expansion is most of it seems to be domestically driven, particularly uh, government, the leveraging of government resources. Um, there's, there, there are some concerns about the fiscal sustainability of recent government uh, policies, in particular the universal free education, and then the ramping up of the transportation infrastructure development in the country. I mean, that's fine in the short run, but it's increasing the operation and maintenance bill that the government is committing to over the long run. Um, so that's going to be somewhat of a concern. As I mentioned, development partner and investor re-engagement. I guess the real thing that people will be looking towards is whether the international investors do come back to the country. We see that a number of them are on the sidelines, just waiting to see things go. But if that takes off, um, that, that, that's going to be the saving grace. I guess to meet, its, it, to meet the country's short-term um, budget deficit, they're actually planning to sell off some state-owned assets this year. But that's not a, a strategy that can work on a sustainable basis. And then I think looking at it regionally, uh, as young John pointed out, you know, Regional integration is a key thing, and I think uh, it's safe to say that the country has suffered from the, the, the sort of the, the status with uh, Fiji's relationship with this forum secretariat with the Australian and New Zealand government has put somewhat of a stifle on the, the natural hub of the region. So hopefully with, with the, the, the softening of relations and, and improved relations, it can become, again, the, the hub that will fuel regional cooperation and, and greater growth in the region in, in coming years. Okay. And now I'm not sure where I am on time. Uh, five minutes? Okay. Stop that. Okay. Um, then I'll be very quick. So looking at the South Pacific, um, we have uh, the, the very diverse economies of Cook Islands, Samoa, Tonga, and Vanuatu with more moderate growth rates. Uh, Cook, Cook Islands is, is by far, you know, is, is sort of a, a close partner of New Zealand, very strong migration ties, and, and a, a very highly tourism-dependent economy. 
uh, with, with a high per capita income. Vanuatu is somewhat similar, a little more diversified, but a large uh, uh, tourism sector as well, but agriculture, other sectors. Um, and then Samoa and Tonga, um, uh, they, they uh, well, Samoa uh, having very good policies in place, but not really seeing the growth, growth uptick. That's a puzzle for it. Um, in, in all the countries, we have relatively large uh, public sectors limiting fiscal space. So um, the need to you know, reform SOEs, to improve the private sector environment is, is, is key, particularly in, in, in Tonga. And the, there's a need in all countries we see to uh, in, increase fiscal, fiscal space, to increase resilience to external shocks. A, a number of these economies have been subjected to, to repeat uh, natural disasters that have had really adverse impacts on the economy. Samoan, I'm thinking of Samoa, but also Tonga last year had a, well, in, I guess that would have been 2013, had, had a big typhoon. So the North Pacific economies, Marshall Islands, Federated States of Micronesia and Palau, um, tend to have much closer ties to the U.S. They all have compacts of free association, providing annual budget support with the U.S. each year, um, migration rights uh, in, into the U.S. Um, they are some of the smallest and most remote countries, uh, particularly I'm talking about FSM and Marshall Islands. Um, they've struggled for the reasons Zhang-Jean said, because of the small size and remoteness, to get find a lot of uh, engines for exports or growth. Palau is a country probably in a very different position because of its relatively strong private uh, tourism sector. And, uh, but the, the need to improve connectivity, to carve out niche markets um, are, are there. All the countries are facing fiscal adjustments now with the drawdown, the expiration of the Compact of Free Association in 2023. So uh, countries are making efforts to create uh, trust funds to fill that gap, um, although with, with at best uh, mediocre success in building up those trust funds to necessary levels. Okay. And Palau is a country where um, actually visitor arrivals are coming in a little lower than, than expected. Um, 2013 was a particularly bad year for tourism in the country, but now flight connections have been, have been restored. Um, and there's been this issue about capacity constraints for tourism arrivals in key peak se in peak areas, peak seasons of demand, both in terms of the public infrastructure and then just availability of accommodation. But the government does seem to be taking some actions there, uh, with the with the ADB water sanitation project being an example of sort of the the government recognizing the important role of public goods in tourism development and, and making the investments needed to sustain it, its growth engine. Okay. I think this is the last group, uh, the small island economies, um, Kiribati, Nauru, and Tuvalu. Um, so in general, uh, the countries have, have had low growth rates, although you see Nauru with, with two things. The regional processing center has been a real windfall to the economy, driving growth very small. Again, with a small base, a little bit of difference can really propel growth. Um, and as well, and all of the countries are appreciating re, uh, map, uh, growth from, from greater uh, fishing license revenues. So um, that's the, the, the hope is that they can turn these sort of windfalls. We don't know um, how long that will last, if they can uh, turn that, if they can transfer some of those windfall revenues into uh, trust funds to, to reduce reliance on ODA and improve intergenerational equity. Um, that's what we're advising. So all countries are working um, on putting more funds into their trust funds, 
or uh, establishing a new, new trust fund in Nauru. So ADB is working very closely with the government on that. Okay, I'm gonna skip the inflation outlook with, because it's not that interesting. Um, in terms of looking at the, the risks uh, and issues, um, definitely what Australia still tends to be the anchor for most of the economy, mo most of the economies in the region. So Australia's economic performance will, will be key. We have the elections in Fiji, Solomon Islands, and Tonga for later this year. So um, uh, those will obviously could have an impact on the growth outlook. Again, the, the fragility factor. I mean, the Pacific Islands are always one typhoon away from a major shock to their growth. Um, commodity price changes in light of the, the reliance on export commodity uh, exports for the growth engines. And then uh, impact of global economic developments through first and second round effects um, being the other major risk factor. Okay. So outside the resource, resource fuel, export fuel growth, uh, the near-term growth outlook for the Pacific economies to, continues to be fairly uh, tempered. Um, but there are new and uh, emerging growth opportunities, some of which, you know, Young Zhan again discussed in some detail. Um, I guess my, my only difference on those, I mean, if I look at fisheries, I mean, the sustainability of the tuna fishery, I think might be, uh, I think specialists, and I'm really looking forward to the session tomorrow on this, might differ in terms of how, how sustainable the current uh, levels of extraction from the, the fisheries uh, will be. And you also have opportunities in aquaculture, uh, biofuels. Um, I mean, so there are technologies changing. I'll finish over. So again, um, ADB is looking into longer run research into the, the growth strategies uh, with a study, study called the Evolving Economic Linkages Research. And we're gonna be looking at, at these things in more detail. I think the real puzzle is not just, so now that we sort of know where where the changes are needed, how do you, how do you change these institutions where, where the, exist, the status quo is so ingrained, um, where, where you have things like the land tenure problems and the create, how do you change that? So we're gonna be trying to look back and see where they've made change. So I think you can find examples in the region where some countries have made some progress on, on, on the land issue, for example, if you look at Vanuatu. They, they've, so I, we're gonna be trying to look at those lessons and look at you know, the keys to tourism sector development at a, at a very micro level, at really trying to develop case studies. So that's a stream of work that we're starting this year and hopefully we'll, I'll be able to give you a much more interesting report next year. And a final word, just a little plug. I mean, so if you look at the priority of improving the linkages, reducing the transport costs of the region, I mean, actually, I think the ADB portfolio aligns pretty well with this. So we're working a lot on infrastructure, uh, transport, and ICT infrastructure. Um, we, we also view PFM as being a major priority in terms of the, the key role, hopefully I've hit on it a few times, the key role of public financial management and, and efficiency of public expenditure, delivery of public goods uh, to the growth uh, prospects of the region, and also carrying out technical assess assessments. So, uh, ADB is eager to continue to work with uh, countries to figure out ways to sustain their current driver's growth and identify and develop new growth engines. And so thank you very much. I have a couple of links there. Um, the presentation will be distributed afterwards. So you, the monitor series will be released. The next monitor will be released on July 3rd. Um, we have the Asian Development Outlook, which is the other quarters. And then um, ADB's work to sort of assist countries. So we have a facility to provide technical assistance to countries to work on their economic policy called the Pacific Economic Management TA, where we, we, we've hired some, uh, we have a team of technical experts and 
long-term uh, leading economists from the region, former central bank governors and that, and they're available to mobilize, not just to ADB projects, but to our development partners as well. So um, wanted to point that out, and we have the project webpage there. So thanks. Sorry, sorry to go over time. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you, Christopher. I think, I do think it's useful to have that overview for the uh, rest of the proceedings. So we do have some time for questions. Uh, can I ask the two speakers come up front? And uh, we'd like to kick off Q&A. And anyone else with a question, just put your hand up. We'll bring you a mic. Yeah. I went to a meeting in CG in 1998 where the Royal Bank was talking about transport sector reform. And the representative from Tobago got up and said, we would be happy for private investment in our transport sector. But no one's bought the Nabana, which is the Indriver Ferry, ever since. And I'm wondering, we've talked a lot about constraints within the countries, so what about the lack of foreign investment in core sectors like this, which seems to me to be a roadblock to, to the sorts of things you're talking about? Pacific countries have been talking about transport sector reform for decades, and yet there's not the investment simply because people can't make a buck out of it. And Governments are continuing to have to subsidise these services to provide for the needs of our islands. Um, so, what's new that's going to change that? Yeah, we'll take a couple of questions and then turn to our speakers. Yeah. Okay, for me, Stephen, thanks. Um, this is more a question for you. For me. Uh, Dan, for your two speakers. <laughs> In that it's of some concern to me at this stage, discussing the uh, growth in the Pacific, as to whether we have a full understanding. Um, but I am hopeful that my questions, really two issues, are going to be answered. Um, first by your, your, yourself in the next session, in terms of the quality of this work, and somewhat related to that is the totality of our understanding. As Christopher said, I'm pleased to see that the IMF are looking beyond macroeconomics and, and price uh, influence to microstructural issues, but then it goes even beyond that. To some, and, and this is a little embarrassing perhaps at this stage to, to mention this, but some 30 years ago, Bertrand Waters described the mirror theory of growth, which we seem to have forgotten. I never liked that particular theory because it, to me, would be the uh, islands to the excuse of, well, we found our growth in migration and then this is a bureaucracy, whereas in fact, those factors have perhaps negatively impacted on what others would like to see uh, in terms of domestically produced growth. And I know of many businessmen in the islands and all these islands over many years who have tried with great frustration to uh, generate jobs, incomes through new businesses and be frustrated by the negative impact of inelastic supplies of uh, international assistance and by the prevailing political economy in these islands that does not necessarily really uh, support change. And then perhaps... So perhaps um, come to the question. Well, the question is, is Ron going to deal with that later <laughs> in the session? <laughs> That's the question? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, let's leave that question aside because Ron will talk about what he wants to do. <laughs> but uh, I think let's make it a question to the speakers. I mean, is this... Uh, are you ignoring the Mirab model? I'll, I'll deal with the quality of growth and the growth. You know, there is an issue of quality of growth, uh, especially um, in the resource-rich countries, in my view. Um, 
Crystal showed me a uh, you know, fantastic growth who we have to recover, I don't know about some of the things, but PMD, they have fantastic growth over the past decade or so. But if you actually look at the, um, like the spillover to the wider economy, um, it's not huge. I mean, it's significant, but it's not huge. Take PMD for example. Um, the R&D project was about 100% of GDP. They did generate quite a bit of uh, demand throughout the economy, construction of booming, retail booming, and so on and so forth. And um, I think, uh, yes, for well, the last week, uh, John Gibson gave a presentation in GNG showed that poverty did not really fall between 1906 and 2010. Now, the whole bank had a different view on that because John started from 96 and then compare one and a half decade earlier, uh, later. Well, what bank did was they did a simulation based on macro some data and they found that in the early 2000s there must be a sharp increase in poverty. So, if you look at from that point, then to 2010, there was a quite uh, a drop in poverty. So, I'm saying is that yes, Quality of growth is an issue, but it has benefited um, to a significant extent of, of, of the economy and people. And much more needs to be improved, of course, and in the case here, you can talk forever about security and all other issues about expanding private sector uh, to improve you know, the phase of growth, the quality of growth. Quick on the graph, the true issue that I talk about. Um, is reminding another model called size, the small island tourist economy. There was a profit uh, model as well. Mirat, um, it fit into the, um, the remittances uh, labor, city uh, uh, labor scheme. But, but I think, um, you know, this issue is still being debated whether A or remittances have any negative impact or not. My sense is that, um, I mean, depending on how you use it, uh, I'm more positive on remittances, uh, less so on A, but that's very debatable. I know that there are hundreds of million of these, so I'll stop here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see. So thanks, thanks very much for the question about private sector investment in infrastructure, and you're right. It, it tends to still be mostly a public sector round working with development partners like the AEDU to finance the, the, these uh, major infrastructure projects. I mean, to some extent they're public goods, but you're right, there are opportunities for PPP in these areas. And there are a few examples um, of, of PPPs. I think the Lake Forest Development AED has in, in PNG, I think there, there are private sector components to that. I know the current discussions of uh, the development of the T-Bar port in, in, outside Dillard, Again, we're talking about strong PPP. So I think in the countries with, with relatively larger markets, there are some examples of these. In the, the smaller economies, I think one, I mean, again, just overcoming the scale, um, because I mean, private sector investors usually like to think, in, you know, they run to the nearest five million. So they're probably, I mean, this is what our experience is, they're just not interested in dealing with, with, with the investments in the smaller economies. Um, the other thing that have really struggled in terms of a lot of the transport infrastructure is the government's unwillingness to set aside community service obligations. So
So they, they want to, you know, try to serve the whole country politically. It's not feasible to say no. We're, we're you know, the other islands, uh, yes, we'd like to serve them, but it's really not affordable. So that obviously, when you include those sorts of things, it becomes, you know, less attractive to, to overseas investment. And obviously, the investment environment becomes a concern where you have, you know, a history of, of, of poor performance um, that makes people, and, and, and it makes them relatively riskier investments. Um, and definitely developing a lot of the institutional development needed to you know, improve uh, financial accounting standards. I mean, basically, the back institutional backbones of, of solid investment is a work in progress in the region. I think ADD's uh, private sector development initiative is taking concrete measures in this area, but again, it's, 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 not, it's not comprehensive, and um, we're, we're definitely looking to improve uh, uh, Private, public private partnerships in, in major infrastructure investments in the region. In fact, our, our ADE vice presidents of the private sector operations department just recently, uh, I think earlier this week or last week, was making a tour of the region. So ADE is looking uh, to try to improve that potential. Um, and, oh, the other example that, that, obviously, the other example that comes to mind is the, the telecom in, in uh, Digicel to PNG is, is kind of held up as being a real example of, of a very positive uh, PPP experience in the Pacific. So hopefully as, as we have some successes in these areas, we'll see more and more of that because, yeah, compared to what the development partners can put in, I mean, private sector finance is so much greater, and it is going to be um, the key to longer term growth. Okay, great. Questions, yeah. questions. I'll take the first one on, on uh, no. So, I mean, data, 
data on Nauru is, is definitely the, the most scarce. So our calculations tend to be of the back of the envelope variety, just looking at the wages and stuff. Um, I mean, guessing the future of the RPC is something I wouldn't, I wouldn't venture to try to guess. I mean, so we're just looking at sort of at current levels, and we also see some of the, the things going on with the visa fees in, in Nauru, again, leading to greater public expenditure. Um, so I mean, this is just sort of looking at it in the current and not, not really making any projections. I mean, the other thing that Nauru does have going forward is that the, the phosphate, the secondary phosphate, the exploitation of the secondary phosphate exports have resumed. So that's, that's helping the country. Um, I guess implicit in, in my discussion of Nauru was the, the, I guess, underlying it was the Nauru government should think of RPC as not being sustainable, as something not likely to go on forever. So they, that's, again, the argument for why you should be putting as much of the, the revenues from that windfall into a, a longer-term trust fund as possible, a trust fund very much unlike the, the previous trust fund in Nauru. So. <laughs> Great. Um, so I thank you for that uh, um, talk. Um, on A, um, as I said, there have been a lot of uh, debate. Um, it's very hard to, to say that A is not helpful for reading these things. I think everyone agrees. Um, and I remember I did a paper from A had a negative impact on growth. One of my colleagues in Washington jumped at me, could you imagine what the world would look like without aid in the Pacific? I said, yeah, that's very hard to imagine. So the problem is aid is helping raising living standards. But then the question is, they need to pay off. We're raising current living standards, but we may, as you say, may be lowering future living standards. Because if, as a result of aid, exchange rate was pushed up, you come into a perennial current kind of deficit, aid comes in to rescue you every year when you have problems. Now, that's just a hypothesis. I have no proof of that. I mean, that's the system that we talked about aid. But it also raises a very interesting issue of how you use it. Right? In theory, you should be able to use it to build infrastructure, productive assets, so that you can raise productivity, that issue that I talk about, so that through productivity improvement, you can make a both raising living standards and improve long-term growth. But in my view, that has not happened as much as we have hoped. Uh, one of the issues that is struggling with is that, in my view, there's probably a bit of lopsided spending on the social sector. We added a lot of university students to USPs, to Fiji National University, and so on and so forth. But we found a lot of those kids don't have a job. So we're producing a lot of human capital, but without jobs provided to them. So I think my personal view is that there's a scope for the aid to move to more productive sectors to get young people a more chance, a greater chance to uh, increase growth as well as living standards. Remittances, um, as I said, I'd probably be more positive. Um, there is an argument that may have a brain drain impact. The other one related is that it raises the reserve wages of, say, farmers. Because they're getting, they're getting remittances regularly from their family members living overseas, they're not willing to take low-paid jobs like farming. 
for, for that lens, you can see there could be potentially net impact similar to A. But I think the one thing different is that if, if the works, uh, seasonal worker scheme works and those remittances come from employment directly from OC, at least we've got more young people involved. We can think of, like in the A, how do we use remittances better? You know, sometimes in Africa now we see the, you know, uh, diaspora bonds trying to put them into investment purposes. Maybe this is something more back A, you can think about how to take out the too, how to make better use of remittances. I'll stop here. Thank you. Okay, well, look, we are a bit behind schedule, so I'm afraid we'll have to stop there. We will try and allow more time uh, in next sessions uh, for questions. Um, I'd like to thank our two speakers for getting us off such a stimulating start, and I hope those are, uh, those are issues we'll revisit throughout the sessions. And, of course, we look forward to Ron's perspective uh, tomorrow. These are the big issues facing the Pacific. Uh, but let me end this session by once again welcoming you, especially those who've come a long way. I do apologise for the cold weather but I hope uh, we'll be able to compensate for that by the uh, warmth of our discussion over the next two days. So please uh, have a cup of tea and coffee, and we'll start again in 15 minutes. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.